Francisco Department of Disability and Aging Services Commission of Wednesday, January 10th to order. I am the DOS Commission President, Janet Spears. This commission meeting is being conducted pursuant to the provisions of the Brown Act. As noted I in gave you you. Oh. She can't hear us? Can you not hear us, Commissioner Bittner? Oh, I think I know what it is. There we go. Can you hear me now, Commissioner Bittner? Yeah. Perfect. Sorry about that. And can you hear me? And welcome. Welcome. As noted on the agenda, members of the public may observe this teleconference meeting via sfgovtv.org or sfgovtv channel 78, and they may offer public comment by calling the publish public comment phone number. I'd like to welcome the members of the public and the staff who are watching us on sfgovtv. The commission asks that you take and thank you for your patience during these unprecedented times. We respectfully ask the public to have patience and expect delays and gaps during the meetings, particularly during public comment. To eliminate background interference, all panelists and presenters that are present via WebEx are asked to mute themselves while not speaking or are waiting to present. The SF, the San Francisco HSA DOS Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their tradi traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatus Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first people. Secretary, please take the roll. Good morning and thank you, President Spears. Commissioners, please respond with present when I call your name. President Janet Y. Spears. Present. Vice President Nelson Lum. Not present. Uh, Commissioner Sasha Bittner. Present. Commissioner Wanda Zhang. Present. Commissioner Martha Knutson. Present. Commissioner Barbara Sklar is not present. Commissioner Linda Parker Pennington. Present. And DOS Executive Director Kelly Dearman. Thank you, and we have a quorum. Thank you. The commission would, would like to quickly address some changes that were made by the Board of Supervisors and, and they have a, where they have eliminated the remote public comment from their meetings. The DOS Commission has decided to keep providing the access to public remote comment at our meetings for the public and our constituents, and we will, be keep, and we will keep doing this until further notice. Thank you. Thank you, and we note that Commissioner Lum is now present. He's here. Uh, commissioners, the next item, item three, is communications. We'd like to provide further instructions for the public pu comment process. Public comment will be available on each item on this, on this agenda and during general public comment. Both channels 78 and sfgovtv.org are streaming the number across the screen. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Comments or opportunities to speak during public comment period are available via phone call. During each public comment period, viewers and callers will be instructed to call 1-415-655-0001, access code 2664-010-7880, pound, and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. 
When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. You'll have three minutes to speak. You'll be informed by the moderator when you have 30 seconds left. After 30 seconds, you'll be muted and placed back to listening mode. Alternatively, public comment can be submitted by email to ravi.derbige at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the commission and will be included as part of the official docket. Are there any communications from DOS commission members? Nope. Okay, we can move on. Commissioners, your next item is agenda item four, approving the minutes of Wednesday, October 4th, 2023 DOS commission meetings. Are there any comments or questions from the commission regarding the, the minutes of uh, October 4th? No comment? Nope, no comments. Do we have anyone from the public who wishes to comment? Uh, moderator, will you please open the phone line for public comment? And we allow some time for callers to submit their request. Uh, moderator, do we have any callers in the queue? There are no callers? Okay, thank you. Hearing no further requests to speak on item four, um, may I have a um, motion for approval? I'll move. Second. And a second? I have a motion and a second. Uh, Secretary, will you please take a vote? Take President a vote. Janet Spears, how do you vote? Yes. Vice President Nelson Lum, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Martha Knudsen, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Sa Sasha Bittner, how do you vote? Yes. Uh, Commissioner Wanda Zhang, how do you vote? Yes. And Commissioner Linda Parker Pennington, how do you vote? Yes. Thanks. We have a unanimous vote. Thank you. Commissioners, item five is the executive director's report. Executive Director Kelly Dearman, welcome and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you all, um, President Spears, Commissioners. Um, just as a PSA, I have a cold. I do not have COVID, and I tested last night and this morning, but for everyone, I'll keep my mask on, um, except when I'm speaking, it's too hard for me, glasses fog up. Um, okay, so I have a few things to report on. It feels like I haven't seen you all in a really long time, so I'm um, happy to be here. First, you all might remember way back in, in November, we had this thing called APEC. And um, APEC was a success, and I just want to give a shout out to um, Annie Chung at Self-Help for the Elderly. One of the big issues for us was um, to ensure that um, services were going to be met for our older adults and people with disabilities who were in the hot zone. And so we were able to work with our food providers to make sure, uh, another shout out to Tiffany Kearney who worked really hard with me on that, um, to make sure that the uh, food was delivered beforehand. There were some congregate meals that also happened. And so working with um, the uh, city assessor, Joaquin Torres and Annie Chung from Self-Help for the Elderly and us, we were able to get a restaurant who would provide hot meals uh, three or three days that week and we went and served everyone and it all worked out. So um, we were happy to see. I also think it was, a, it was an opportunity for us to put a spotlight on older adults and people with disabilities to remind them that we are here, we are part of this community and we can't, you know, be ignored, so. That was good. Uh, yesterday, uh, DOS was host to 
28 members of, a, um, of the Korean delegation who came to hear all about our programs. And thanks to our team who provided a lot of information and answered questions, they were particularly interested in IHSS and how we run it, but it's a great opportunity, again, for us to talk about how we are providing services for, um, for those most in need. I um, also want to mention that um, since you've been gone, uh, the um, uh, San Francisco Police Chief uh, Scott acknowledged L.V. Flaviano and John Gallagher uh, for all the work they have done for veterans in the police force, and so that's wonderful acknowledgement for for them and for us. And um, you all might have heard that as of January 1st, the um, uh, the definition of grave disability for conservatorship has been expanded to now include um, people with severe substance use disorder. So there has been a lot of work going on since October um, to make sure that we are ready for this and so that more those who those extreme cases of people who need to be conserved can be conserved. So we have done um, a lot of cross-departmental work with DPH, with the police, with uh, fire, with the sheriff, um, to and working very closely with the mayor's office to make sure that we are ready. We are one of two counties in the state that is implementing this law right now. At this point, I think it's really important for me to give yet another shout out to Aditi Valori from planning at HSA who has worked tirelessly um, to make sure that our dashboard is, is ready, to make sure that we are um, accurately um, counting all the data points and really helping us talk through what's the best way to do this. So to Aditi and all of planning and to Jill and all of your team, Jill Nielsen and all of your team, it's been a Herculean effort um, we are still trying to work out all the kinks, but I'm super proud of my team and what they, what they bring every day. So huge shout out to them. I won't talk about the budget that's coming up next. Um, <laughs> so I'm only here to bring the good news today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, are there any follow-up questions for Kelly? Yeah, I have a question. Yes. I'm going I'm going to the grave disability for substance abuse as to a particular definition so so um so I'm sorry commissioner I think your question is do you want me to expand further on what the definition of um, grave disability and how they added substance abuse, substance use disorder? Yeah, right? like, because I assume it's not like. So. I yeah. Okay, so prior to January 1st, and Jill, you can help me if I get this wrong. Prior to January 1st, um, grave disability meant uh, severe uh, mental health uh, issues. 
and the governor signed into law, um, which now includes severe substance abuse disorder. So the process still remains the same for conservatorship. So what's really important is for people to remember that um, that no one's what is happening is that even though the definition has expanded, everyone is still afforded the same rights when it comes to conservatorship. And for most people, in order for it to happen, they would have had to have been 5150'd um, a couple of times, once or a couple of times, and they have to, these are for those who are, um, it's the most extreme um, folks who are needing this because they're not able to care for themselves as a result of um, uh, mental disorder or substance use disorder. Does that help? Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I'm, okay. I just worry that it would become a cyclical routine. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to let um, Deputy Director Jill Nielsen explain it even better. And I was just going to, that was a, a great explanation, Director Dearman. I was just going to add that prior to January 1st, the definition for grave disability was the inability to provide for food, clothing, or shelter due to serious mental illness uh, and or chronic alcoholism. And so that definition continues today. Um, and grave disability is now defined as the inability to provide for food, clothing, or, or shelter, or necessary medical care, or personal safety as a result of serious mental illness or a severe substance use disorder, which is actually uh, very specific. It, it requires an individual to meet six out of 11 symptoms that are in the Diagnostical Statistical Manual. Thanks. So That's before perfect. you sit down, Thank you. I've we said there are two things. One, we were one county that was doing it. And what is the other county that's? Um, San Luis Obispo. And do we have any idea of what the increase might be that if people need to go through this process, since it seems like there's been a lot of work put in to getting prepared for this possibility? So we don't know yet what okay. the, um, how many people are going to avail themselves of this or how many people will be referred to our office. So we probably will know better in February or March. Thank you. I, I did have one comment sure. on the director's report. I just, uh, it wasn't lost on me that um, you got this international recognition with this delegation from Korea. And I think it's, a, it's lovely to get the acknowledgement of how DOS is in a leadership role, um, uh, not only in the US, but internationally, you know, that, that you're getting that recognition. So I just wanted to make that Point, and I want to say I'm really, really proud. I just finished my first year, and I was just renewed on this commission, and I'm really, really happy uh, to be here and to see such good work Thank that's you. being done by your whole team. So Thank you so much. Prior to the pandemic, apparently delegations would come with some regularity. Am I making that up? That was before me. And, um, and really, um, Cindy... Kaufman did the heavy lifting for that, but it really was wonderful. And to um, be able to talk to folks from other parts of the world, it was 
of course, now I want to go to Korea. So, okay. <laughs> so um, we'll figure that out. But it was, thank you very much. Kudos. Thank you. Um, commissioners, our next item, and we have a few of these, which is going to be so much fun. Um, item number six, the DOS employee recognition. Um, Executive Director Dearman and, and I will honor for the month of November of 2023, uh, Alma Jones, who is DOS IHSS supervisor. And so I'll turn it over to Hell you. So um, we did not have a meeting in November or December, so we um, are going to acknowledge three amazing people today. So first up, Alma Jones and her energetic and vibrant presence has been an integral part of the IHSS program for the past 16 years. Alma is an IHSS supervisor who oversees a team of six social workers and is known for her lively and dynamic demeanor, which has brought such a vibrant and welcoming atmosphere to our workplace. During her years in IHSS, Alma has actively participated in several critical projects imperative to the success of IHSS, and she doesn't hesitate to share her opinions and ideas to enhance the program's service delivery. Her commitment to both her colleagues and the department alike has been a shining example and inspiration to us all. Throughout the years, Alma has volunteered her time for various committees, including the IHSS Staff Inclusion, IHSF, IHSS Retreat, and IHSS Appreciation Barbecue events, showcasing her commitment to fostering a positive workplace and improving staff morale in the program. In 2018, Alma took on the challenging role of acting program manager for eight months. During this time, she worked alongside the IHSS acting director to ensure the program's operations ran smoothly. Her ability to step into a leadership role and maintain program stability reflects her accomplishments and dedication. Alma's outstanding contributions to this department have not gone unnoticed. Her commitment to her role as a supervisor is greatly appreciated by all of her staff and colleagues. Alma has recently accepted an acting role as a program analyst at the CalWORKS program. We congratulate her for this achievement, further highlighting the recognition and respect she has earned within the IHSS program. Her continued dedication has made her an invaluable asset to DOS and the IHSS program, and we are honored and delighted to honor her as the DOS November Employee of the Month. From all of us at DOS and IHSS, thank you for everything, Alma. Thank you so much for this honor. Um, I want to thank the DOS Commission, uh, Executive De Director um, Kelly Dearman, and Deputy Directors Jill Nielsen, Cindy Kaufman, IHSS Director Shannon Morgan, and the management team. Again, thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart of this honor. As an African-American woman with a disability, I'm not only a representation of the population we serve, but I also can be able to advocate on their behalf to improve services that we provide to them. I wanna thank uh, Tony, Anna, and Uni for giving me the opportunity to be the housing support coordinator 
and I just appreciate um, them giving me this opportunity, but had I not got the skills at IHSS to be able to perform this duty, I wouldn't be able to be in this position today. I wanna thank and give a shout out to my housing support team who have so far been sticking by me through all the changes that we're currently going through. Um, and I just wanted to acknowledge their hard work and support. Thank you, Bernie, for being a mentor to me while I was at IHSS as a supervisor and acting manager. You have been there for me um, when I was facing challenges, trying to implement state initiatives. And I just appreciate Bernie so much, that support. I wanna thank Hugh Wang for giving me the opportunity to be acting manager. He never doubted my abilities to be able to perform the duties and he advocated for me and I'm just so grateful that he gave me that opportunity which opened up a lot of doors for me. Thank you Shannon Morgan for just hearing me out and listening to me. I really appreciate this so much since you arrived at IHSS and um, I just appreciate your support. Sandy, thank you so much for basically putting up with me. <laughs> I know that um, I can really get emotional when it comes to program practices and implementing new um, uh, challenges and stuff that our staff have to face, but know that I'm really passionate about the work I do. And I just thank you so much for bringing our suggestions and ideas back to the management team. And I really appreciate that support from you. To the clerical team who processed the many paperwork, to the IPAC staff that answer so many phone calls daily, and to the QA staff to ensure that we are in line with federal, state, and county policies. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. But I wanna thank the staff who does an incredible, incredible job every day. They're not firefighters, they're not law enforcement, but they put their lives on the line every single day. And that's the social workers, social work specialists, and the supervisors. Thank you so much for your hard work and support. This award is dedicated to you. So, okay, don't leave, and thank you. That was fantastic. We're going to do all three, and then we'll come down and do pictures with each of you. Okay. That was amazing to hear you thank all of your colleagues and who support and hold up uh, what we get to experience here in the city. So thank you so much for calling out uh, those who support each other in making this in our community so much more powerful and and better for each and every one of us. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Um, I'm not gonna get emotional. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so that is, um, uh, commissioners, our next item is item number seven. Uh, DOS employee recognition, Kelly German again will speak, and is for the December 2023 Employee of the Month, who goes to Ricardo Corona, who is a dynamic eligibility 
work supervisor at DOS Medical and CalFresh Unit. Here. Congratulations to Ricardo Corona. His exceptional contributions have earned him recognition as a key player within the DOS eligibility team. Ricardo's impact is felt across various facets of the unit's operations. With a keen eye for efficiency, he introduced a streamlined note-taking system in the iTask platform, which was swiftly adopted by the unit. He also played a significant role in the CalSAS transition serving as an early adopter, training assistant, and change network champion. His coordination of activities and unwavering support to colleagues have been instrumental in ensuring a seamless transition. Even in the face of challenges, Ricardo's exceptional qualities are evident with his upbeat de demeanor, which resonates throughout his team. He actively reduces open overdue tasks, which elevates the overall performance of his unit and as a communicator. Ricardo stands out for his clarity, responsiveness, and adaptability to work with all members of his team. His organizational prowess is evident in his ability to manage competing priorities and meeting deadlines, exemplified by completing HAAS and CMIPS reviews while participating in intensive training sessions. Ricardo's commitment to quality service is unwavering demonstrated through proactive measures and a willingness to go the extra mile for colleagues and clients alike. Beyond his professional competence, Ricardo is also a team player who fosters positive working relationships, building trust through transparency and ethical behavior. His dedication to continuous learning and improvement makes him a reliable source for navigating organizational changes. In essence, Ricardo Corona, is an embodiment of excellence in both organizational and job-related competencies. His positive attitude, commitment to continuous improvement, and exceptional leadership make him a standout contributor to the DOS Hub team and bring smiles to everyone he works with. Ricardo's impact is not just recognized, it's celebrated, and we can't thank him enough. Thank you so much, Ricardo. I'm just gonna be brief. Thank you very much for this honor. I'm really happy it happened to us. And again, it's I think therefore it's not only me. It's a part of the team. I'm, I'm happy to be part now. That's it's a great experience. Thank you. Thank you. some good people I know right <laughs> that's what I'm thinking yeah I'm like so am I um, um, commissioners uh, our next item is item number eight employee recognition um, with um, Kelly Dearman and the DOS Commission will honor the January we're actually in January January 2024 employee of the month Tiffany Kearney who is the DOS lead nutritionist and program analyst Tiffany Kearney is the lead nutritionist here at DOS and a program analyst whose devotion and understanding for her clients and their needs shines above everything else. 
Tiffany is being acknowledged for all of her hard work and dedication throughout her years here at DOS. And we especially want to acknowledge and thank her for her unwavering efforts during the APEC conference that took place in San Francisco last November. The restrictions and limitations of the exclusion zones around the conference affected the delivery of meals to approximately 5,500 of our most vulnerable clients that rely heavily on us. Tiffany was diligent in her efforts to achieve this goal, and she worked seamlessly with her DOS team of nutritionists, DOS leadership, and with our community partners to find ways of reaching every client. Tiffany's exemplary focus, her presence and compassion for both clients and colleagues, and professionalism ensured that the needs of all of our DOS clients exceeded all expectations. Tiffany stayed focused throughout the process, ensuring that all 5,500 clients would not see any changes in their food delivery. This speaks to her daily proactive nature to working with programs and internal stakeholders. Tiffany kept the community partners, fellow nutritionists, and DOS leadership informed and adapted and responded immediately to the constantly changing parameters and needs. Throughout this stressful process, especially for our community partners, Tiffany calmed them, assured, assured them we are here to assist them, and provided assistance. Thanks to Tiffany's hard work and dedication, all of our DOS clients were provided with food for the duration of the conference. That was her goal, and Tiffany, Tiffany overwhelmingly met it. She is always keeping the needs of her colleagues, clients, and community partners in the forefront. I would also just add that she did that during APEC, but that's what she does each and every day and works really hard for our clients, works really well with us, and we are just very appreciated, appreciative of you. So from everyone at DOS, thank you, thank you for all of your hard work, Tiffany. Um, thank you. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but um, uh, I am very um, grateful for this acknowledgement, and um, I'll just say that I'm also very, very um, thankful to all of um, our community partners um, who do such hard work day in and day out to serve um, older adults, adults with disabilities, and pretty much um, anyone who needs a, um, a little help, a little food, um, anything really. Um, and also, um, I've been very, very lucky um, the last couple of years to um, uh, have uh, two amazing nutritionists on my team who have really um, been just um, such a tremendous joy to work with and um, provide such amazing um, support to community providers. Um, so I'm just very thankful for that. And I'm also very thankful for all of the staff um, around us, budget, planning, um, contracts, um, and everyone else that uh, supports um, supports our little nutrition team um, and also the community providers. And I thank management um, and Melissa, my uh, direct supervisor, and uh, DOS leadership. Um, so th thank you very much.
So if the three recipients could come back up so we can take a picture. contingency not received out. actually put in the 10% or not, the 10%, because that's where they're doing the additional amount. Mm -hmm. And this is the review. <laughs> So the best part of the meeting is past, and now we're going. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Budget is today. That's going to be the best part of the meeting. Um, to my notes. Commissioners, item nine is our next item, and it's the advisory council and TAC report presented by the advisory council president, Diane Lawrence. Is she on? Join us remote. She's joining us remotely, so um, Diane, can you hear us? I can hear you, and I apologize for not being there. I ran a little, was be remote and not late, so I opted for remote. So um, good morning, um, Executive Director Dearman, uh, commissioners, and Happy New Year. So I uh, submitted a rather extensive report. Wanted to just point out a couple of key highlights. Um, one, on site visits, we completed six last year in 2023, continued to refine the process, and have decided that uh, two things that will change in the coming year. We're going to focus more on DOS-funded areas, such as nutrition, look at the site as a whole, but want to focus in on where um, the DOS dollars are going. And we're going to, on, in order to save time and um, be a little more efficient with our meetings, We'll distribute the reports to the council prior to the meeting. Uh, members will prep and read beforehand, bring any questions, and then we may or may not have a formal presentation to save time. I have some good news on membership. 
Um, our candidates for District 1 and District 5, um, their applications have been forwarded to the Board of Supervisors Rule Committee. Um, there was an additional District 1 applicant. We actually had two, uh, one recommended by uh, the aforementioned Annie Chung from South Help for the Elderly and one from a, DOS, uh, from a council member. Um, we have on the second candidate for District 1, Supervisor Chan is highly recommending her for the council and that application has been forwarded to the commission nominating committee. We're just waiting, awaiting an updated um, resume. Um, I just wanted to remind you that the joint legislative process is changing uh, for this year and our first meeting will be February 21st. We'll have a report in March, but we will give you a heads up on my um, in the March report of the bills that are starting to move through since this is an entirely new two-year session. We set some priorities for the year. They're in the report, but I'll just call them out. Um, more advocacy. Uh, goal is to fill the vacancies and get our reappointments done as quickly as possible. We have two reappointments for the commission. You have one of those applications. We'll get you the second. And we have four supervisorial uh, applications. We'll be down to four commission vacancies and three um, supervisors. So we'll work with the supervisors. Um, we're going to work on updating our handbook. It's really um, out of date. So we'll continue work there and really push. And then we thought, and I can't believe we did, we didn't think of it before, we'll provide, develop and provide a checklist to supervisors on the um, nominating process because we find that that um, takes them a little extra time and we wanna make it easier for them. And then we'll look to fill our two CSL um, positions. Uh, my notes on the leading edge presentation were fairly brief um, because I didn't have the uh, material in front of me. I have that slide deck and I'm sending it to Ravi and if you would like a copy, please ask him and we'll, we'll get it to you. It's a really exciting program. So that's, that's my report for January and you have my November and um, December reports in, in the report I submitted. Thank you. Um, commissioners, do you have any questions or comments? Um, just some comments, President Lawrence. I just want to uh, commend you on the excellent report. It's very detailed, very clear. I appreciate it, the high-level calendar. And I agree that, that the site visit report from uh, Lighthouse for the Blind was just really excellent. And I actually um, learned a lot. I didn't realize how extensive the services were. I also appreciate the fact that you do have uh, pretty well outlined for us a proposed uh, calendar for 2024. So that gives us a nice highlight as to what your plans are. So I just want to say thank you and commend you for the excellent work putting all this work together. Thank you. It helps keep me organized. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments? Well, thank you. I, I will uh, second that. It, it is um, really nice to know uh, what the plans are for the year and, um, and, and more importantly, having the details um, in advance. So thank you so very much. Um, commissioners, our next item is item number 10, which is the case report presented by Dan Gallagher. Good morning, commissioners and the executive director, Dearman. It's nice to see you again. 
I'll uh, begin with the CAGE programming for the last couple of months. Uh, in October, uh, Susie Stadler, who's the architect and the executive director at, uh, at home with Growing Older, um, gave a presentation um, and an overview of the Aging 360 workshop uh, developed by her organization. Um, and they, that uh, project engages participants in making adaptations to their homes um, for safety reasons primarily and to make actually things a little bit easier to manage at homes, things like grab bars or changing the way handles are on doors or, um, and also doing that in a way that it doesn't disrupt the decor of the homes. So um, it was a rather informative presentation and uh, something that certainly as we grow older, we can all look into. So uh, in November, uh, Jamie Goddard, who is a director of SF Reserve, um, and her colleagues, Jenny Carpenter and Mark Freelander, uh, provided information about the SF Reserve program that engages uh, older um, and retired uh, folks who are, uh, who are skilled in, in various things that nonprofits may, may be able to utilize and, um, and hire. Um, and uh, quite frankly, we've used a couple of those in our nonprofit as a good way to, um, to get some work and some projects completed. In December, we had our case holiday gathering. So we had about 30 to 35 folks from the various nonprofits of case. Uh, we um, had that at the Mission Neighborhood Center. So that was well attended. First time we've had that in three years. So it was nice to see everybody again. And in January, uh, this coming uh, next week, actually, or actually, it just happened on Monday, I'm sorry, uh, we had a presentation from the San Francisco Health Plan on the CalAIM initiative, primarily the enhanced care management program that's intended to serve multiple populations or different populations of focus. Um, it looked for participants who have complex medical conditions. Um, it contracts with providers who work with adults and youth uh, who have substance abuse disorder or who experience homelessness. Um, and uh, they also talked about their uh, incentive um, payment program that provides startup costs for nonprofits that enter into contracts for either enhanced care management or community supports. So that's all part of uh, supporting the CalAIM initiative uh, through the Medi-Cal expansion. Recent case activity, I think we've talked about this uh, quite frequently, what the service provider working group uh, priorities, the key priorities that were presented to DOS. Um, and then finally, and that is listed on my report, and then lastly, I list there the one-time only funding of $6.1 million um, that was afforded to various programs. Um, and uh, you can see listed there what that $6.1 million uh, was assigned to. Okay. And that concludes my report. I'll answer any questions you might have. Are there any questions from the commission? No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Um, it is uh, nice to see you in person. Um, it's been a while. Commissioners, item 11 is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to address the commission on matters that are not on today's
calendar. Are there any members of the public that would like to address the commission today? If yes, um, we'll take them one at a time. Are there any members of the public that would like to address the commission? Uh, moderator, please open the phone line for public comment. We'll allow some time for callers to submit their request. Moderator, do we have any callers in the queue? There are no callers. Thank you very much. Uh, that concludes public comment. And commissioners, your next item is item 12, old business. Commissioners, please indicate by raising your hand if there's any old business that you'd like to discuss. Nope. Okay. We can move to the next item. Commissioners, the next agenda item is item number 13, which is new business. Item number 13A is informational only. Items 13B through 13D are action items that will require a vote by the commission. The first item is item 13A, consideration regarding the DOS proposed budget for FY24-25 and FY25-26 is informational only. So DOS Executive Director Dearman and HSA Dep Deputy Director and Finance Administrator Dan Kaplan will present. Thank you. Good morning, Commissioners. I'm Dan Kaplan, HSA Deputy Director for Administration and Finance. And as President Spears just said, I will be doing this presentation with uh, Director Dearman. So we do two budget presentations every year, as many of you know, because you sat through them before. Um, and the first one is really about establishing the lay of the land. It's the situation we're dealing with from a financial management point of view in the city and in the agency, and to the extent it's affected by the state, uh, the state as well. And I will talk about those things today. Uh, we'll also go through a number of the substantive issues that DAS is dealing with and, uh, and put those on the table. We will be back again on February 7th to present to you a recommended budget and to ask for your approval of that budget. And we are required under city charter to submit that budget to the mayor by February 21st. So that's the sort of the front end of this formal process in a nutshell. Once the mayor's office gets our budget, there's a long process of give and take back and forth uh, between agencies and the mayor's office, and that results in the mayor proposing her citywide budget by uh, June 1st, and then we move into the legislative or the board phase of the process, and that typically takes place between the beginning of June and the middle of July, and then we have a a approved budget going forward into the next fiscal year. San Francisco does a biennial budget, and so we are more heavily concerned about the budget year, but we're also concerned about um, year two or the budget year plus one. And I will talk about that a little bit as well, because in the current situation, we have a substantial citywide deficit in the budget year, in the budget year plus one, it grows rather substantially, and then it keeps growing under current assumptions. And the 
uh, mayor's office, the controller's office, and the budget and legislative analyst's office work together on what they call a joint report, which is a five-year financial plan. So it starts off with the current fiscal year, looks at the budget year, the budget year plus one, and then the two out years. And by the end of that period, under current law assumptions, um, that, that group of agencies is projecting a budget deficit of $1.3 billion a year. So this creates a situation where we are all facing a situation which we have to start to address now in an effort not to be facing a really dramatic budget deficit situation several years down the line. Um, so that that's sort of kind of on the numbers position. I, you know, I would say um, many of us have been through many budget cycles. Some are pretty good years, and we either have extra money to deploy or, or we have pretty neutral financial situations. Some years are cut years, and, and this is a cut year. We are trying to figure out how to deliver city services with substantially less in the way of resources. So I will be talking about what's behind that. And as I said, when we come back to you on February 7th, we will be laying out our plan from the HSA DAS side on how we are gonna get there, our piece of that. So this budget process obviously kicks off formally today. Um, this is the first presentation I've given this year. Um, and uh, it's not the case that a lot of work hasn't happened already. So there's a budget team that is kind of pulling together information on revenues coming into the agency, on areas of expenditure where we're overexpending, on areas of expenditure where we're underexpending. Um, we've been working with each of the program areas on priorities that we're facing this year. So when I walked in the door this morning, Jill Nielsen was talking about Senate Bill 43 criteria and how that changes um, some key processes in DAS. That, that's a new demand on, on our resources. Um, in, in a normal year or in a year where we had resources that were available, we would be seeking additional staff to run that program. Um, in this year, you know, the mayor's office would really like us to absorb that staffing need. So that presents issues for us and we'll have to deal with them and that'll be part of what we bring back to you on February 7th. Um, that's one of many examples that we are facing. So I, I'd like to start the process by talking about um, the current year's budget to give a description of where we are today um, and to remind you of what our budget looks like for DAS. And then I'll go into some of the discussion about the overarching financial situation for the city, talk just a tiny bit about the state, uh, and then we'll shift to uh, Director Dearman talking about highlights in the DAS program area. So we've got a slide, we've got a slide, great. Um, so I, I should say first, the first, we, we always put up three slides when we describe these things. And, um, and we look at them about how do we spread money out over the programs? Um, what are the revenue sources we're working with? 
and what kinds of expenditures, or what we used to call the character of the expenditures we have. And, and I will talk through all three of those aspects of the budget. So the first slide up is really, it's the program budget, it's how do we spread money around. And the first point I'd like to make about the DAS budget, which is not on the slide itself, is that DAS and its sister agency, uh, Benefits and Family Services, uh, both get infrastructural support from HSA. So what you don't see on this budget is that infrastructural support. So there are teams of folks who are off budget here who do budget work, financial management, contracting, uh, human resources, IT, buildings management, fleet management, uh, program integrity work, and disaster services. Those are not carried in the DAS budget, but they provide services to the DAS programming. So what you have in front of you is the DAS budget per se. It is mainly a program budget. Um, so what you will first notice about the DAS budget is there is one very big slice of this pie right at the top of the, uh, right the, top of the slide, and that's the IHSS programs. Um, and the IHSS programs are actually separated into three pieces on this slide. There's the IHSS aid programs. So that's money out the door for um, paying for San Francisco's share of the IHSS MOE, maintenance of effort payment, um, which is the essentially the general fund share of IHSS program costs. The state and the federal shares of the IHSS program are also carried off budget. They don't run through, for the most part, they don't run through the city's books. Um, they are handled at the state level. So when an IHSS worker works for a client, a, a uh, independent provider, the IHSS worker is paid a wage, and that's a wage that is set through negotiations. Um, and, uh, and that information about that goes into the state CMIP system, and the worker is paid. At the state level, the state, in essence, puts in the state share of that money and draws down the federal share of that money. And it has from the county, the county IHSS MOE payment, which represents the local share of that cost. So what you see here, the biggest part of that big uh, slice of the pie is the local government share of IHSS wages. What's also in there are the costs of uh, the IHSS contract mode payment. So uh, San Francisco has a robust contract mode program. It's delivered by Homebridge. You see their contracts every so often. Um, and, um, and those dollars are in there as well. And the other thing that's in there is um, health benefits, dental benefits, vision benefits for IHSS independent providers. Um, and those are paid through a contract with the public authority. So those all go into sort of aid out the door for the IHSS program. The other two pieces of that program are the city staff that work on the IHSS program 
and um, IHSS Public Authority Administration. So if we put all those pieces together, they represent 70% of the DAS budget, biggest single share, a very large program. Uh, Kelly Dearman will talk about the numbers of clients served, but it's a very substantial number of folks who get crucial in-home service through this program. Um, we also have, I guess as the, uh, the second biggest piece of this, the Office of Community Partnerships, Th those are the contracts that provide services to individuals in the city. Uh, they are the contracts that come before you on a regular basis and that you examine and approve. Uh, so that's the second biggest piece. Um, and then after that, we have a number of programs that represent sort of the, the rest of the big pieces. Um, we've got the Adult Protective Services Program, we've got the Benefit and Resources Hub, and we've got the PA, P, PC, PG, and Representative Pay Programs. When we break down those budgets, those are mainly staff budgets. So um, the APS budget is about three quarters staff dollars. Uh, the benefits and resources hub budget is 95% staff dollars. And the PA, PC, PG, and RP, I always have to look at those to <laughs> get the, the letters right. Um, the public administrator, public conservator, public guardian, and representative payee programs are 93% uh, staff. So, so those programs are really the people who are in them and who are doing the work with clients. So let's move to the next slide, great. Um, the next slide is about sources. Sources really means the, the color of money that uh, is used to pay for things. Um, and if you think about this at sort of the, we, we've broken this out more than what I'm about to say, but if you think about this at the highest level, the DAS budget is about a quarter federal money, um, a little more than a third state money, and the rest is local money. So 24% federal, 36% state, and 40% local money. So if we look at the individual slices that make that up, you can say there's a large federal share, this is uh, mainly matching dollars on, on programs that we deliver, uh, mainly claimed money. Um, the state money comes to us also, largely matching money, um, but the state money is a little more complicated because it's really in three pieces. Um, what we've labeled here as state money just comes as matched to our programs, we also have two slices of this pie that we've labeled realignment. So there's 1991 realignment and 2001 realignment. So realignment is a uh, California concept. Uh, basically what happened, and it happened twice uh, in 1991 and in 2011, is that the state uh, stopped funding a state share of a number of programs and gave counties a dedicated revenue source instead. That dedicated revenue source is funded by the state uh, sales tax and by the state vehicle licensing fee. And so the proportions are slightly different for 1991 and 2011, 
but money from those statewide revenue sources flows into a local government assistance fund, and that is then parceled out to counties for a number of uses. So in DAS, the two big uses are IHSS and APS. 1991 realignment provides revenue that we can apply to the cost of the IHSS program, and 2011 provides dollars that we can apply to the costs of the APS program. But that's state money on, in both cases. Um, and then we also have uh, an area that is mainly federal money. It's got a little bit of state money in it, but we, we call it here on this slide dedicated gifts, grants, and fees. Um, we also have a little bit of local fee money in that bucket, but, but the big parts of that are money that flows to DAS through the California Department of Aging, and it's money for Older Americans Act programs, for HICAP, for MIPA, for ADRC, and for SNAP-Ed programs. So that's in there. And then the last sort of portion of this funding puzzle is local money. Um, and that uh, comprises three big buckets for the, well, four big buckets, I should say. So, um, so the first one and the simplest one is what we label as general fund. That's uh, city general fund dollars come in through a number of city general fund sources. Uh, there's also dignity fund money. So dignity fund, as you're well aware, uh, provides a dedicated local source of funds for DAS programs. Um, there's the community living fund dollars, which also are uh, a dedicated fund to, on their own for uh, community living fund programs, mainly those delivered by IOA. Um, and then the last piece of this uh, local government bucket is what we call work order recovery. In, um, in San Francisco budget parlance, a work order is the way one agency pays another agency to do something. So in this case, the, almost all of this money comes from the Department of Health to DAS, and it is used to fund the local share of um, the health benefit program for IHSS workers. It, it's not a perfect match, but that's that when this work order amount got set up, it did cover the local share. It doesn't anymore, and so we add other local money in. Um, okay, that's on fund sources. And then how do we spend the money? What do we spend it on? And as you can see, um, this breaks out into, again, three pieces. The biggest piece is aid. Aid is essentially payments out the door uh, for a particular individual service. In this case, it's IHSS money. Um, that's about 65% of the budget. Uh, there are CBO grants. Again, those are the, the contracts you see on a regular basis. That's about 20%. And staff is about 15%. And there are, there are little amounts of other dollars in here, but, but those numbers sum up to about 100%, and that's really sort of where the DAS money goes. Um, so aid payments are pretty clear. That's the IHSS MOE that I mentioned before, 
contract mode charges, the IHSS health benefits, and the, the uh, public authority administration budget, the CBO grants are the contracts. Um, and then the other big bucket is staff, and that's um, salaries and fringe benefits, which together represent about 15% of the budget. Okay. So that, that was the current year budget. And obviously we'll describe the, the budget year budget when we bring it back to you um, in the proposal similarly, and we will compare the current year and the proposed budget. So you can see the changes that are put in place. Um, if we look at this slide, this is really meant to describe the deficit situation the city has at the moment. And this is built on the five-year forecast that I described before. Um, for budget purposes, we focus on the second and third years of that forecast, so the budget year and the budget year plus one, or fiscal years 24-25 and 25-26. Um, so what you see is that compared to the existing budget, um, we actually are now anticipating trivially less money in the budget year. Um, and we are then expecting growth in the budget year plus one. But the growth is much slower than had previously been expected. And I will come back to that. Um, and then there are various puts and takes, salary and fringe dollars are higher. That's, that's the biggest one here. And the thing that's really driving that is healthcare costs. If you've looked at um, healthcare premiums, they have gone up this year a good bit and that's expected to continue for the next several years. Um, so when we put it all together, we get to a place where we see a budget deficit of $245 million in the budget year and then uh, $555 million in the budget year plus one. And I should say, and this is important, that, um, that we work with multiple forecasts over the course of the year. Um, so this is the the penultimate forecast that will be important for doing the budget work. The last uh, forecast we'll have will be delivered in March. Um, and that will be crucial for a number of reasons. And I think one of the things that's, that is very um, important in DAS is that there is actually a trigger on dignity fund growth that's tied to the size of the deficit. And at the present time, we are just under having a deficit big enough to stop growth of the Dignity Fund. But, but we're about, and I'll come back to this, but we're about $6 million under. So the March forecast could potentially change that depending on the economic situation, and that would stop Dignity Fund growth. Dignity Fund growth is at $3 million a year, just so you know. And it's especially important on a budgetary level. I mean, obviously, we'd like to grow the programs, but we also use Dignity Fund growth to pay for cost of doing business adjustments for Dignity Fund providers. So if 
if that growth stops, then we have to come up with money for inflation for dignity fund providers in a different way. And, and that will cause a little bit of a scramble too. Um, I just want to mention, I had mentioned before that, that it's the out years that are the really big problem here. And so the estimate for the deficit in 26-27 is $945 million. And the estimate for 27-28 is $1,349,000,000. So as I said before, the, the changes we'll be making this year are certainly important for, for bridging the gap um, in the budget year, but also bringing down our level of expenditure relative to revenues in the out years. Okay. Thanks. So what's happened? And I think, you know, there are, there are a number of people who've said a number of things about this, and I, I feel like you know, we're, we're sort of putting the explanation together from a lot of different sources, but why are we growing more slowly from a revenue point of view? And it's a number of things. So first of all, as everyone has heard, in uh, San Francisco, we have an extremely high remote work rate. And that's not coming down very quickly. So during the pandemic, Everyone went home and worked from home if they could for a while. Uh, people started coming back, but that happened pretty slowly in San Francisco and a lot of firms that are um, in San Francisco uh, paying business taxes and occupying large expensive real estate uh, are still working remotely and so we have fewer people in, fewer uh, business expenses supporting those businesses in downtown San Francisco. And uh, we have a lot of people pulling out of commercial leases. Um, and as that's happening, the value of those properties are going down and uh, building owners are asking to have their properties reassessed. And as that happens, the property tax revenue uh, on those properties goes down. So. Uh, so this is a one Im very important driver. Um, another thing is that, um, and, and this, this second thing is, it affects both state revenue and local revenue, is that uh, we've had a period of high inflation and the Fed has done what the Fed normally does in the face of a period of high inflation, it's raised interest rates. Um, and different industries are more or less sensitive to raising interest rates. The high-tech sector, and especially the startup side of the high-tech sector, is very sensitive to uh, increases in interest rates, and a lot of activity has just slowed down recently. So there's a loss in revenue from that as well. And then the third thing to mention is tourism. And you know, during the pandemic, tourism basically ground to a halt, and it started coming back, but it's coming back slowly. Um, and so in previous forecasts, um, the folks who forecast thought that there would be more uh, revenue associated with hotel stays and restaurant meals and conventions, and that has been, uh, it has been growing, but it's been growing much more slowly than had been anticipated. So, on, so that's it on the revenue side. As I mentioned before, the big thing on the expense side 
is really just health benefit costs for employees. I, I should make one other comment about this forecast and the assumption on which it's based. And it's an important one now because we started labor negotiations Tuesday. Um, so this forecast assumes that wage rates for city employees will grow at the CPI. And, and if that's where we settle on our labor contracts, then this will be very accurate. We've been through a pretty high inflation period. Um, you know, unions in many places have looked at this period and for understandable reasons said we have to do catch up. Um, we need, in, we need um, increases bigger than the current inflation rate to do that. So if the city ends up agreeing to wage increases that are um, bigger than the current forecasted CPI rates, then the deficit will get larger and we will have to do more scrambling to, to make this fit. Um, so, and, and there will be pressure for that, certainly, for reasons that may make perfectly good sense. Um, but but it's, a, it's a real issue here in terms of balancing the budget. Okay, so the mayor's instructions. So um, at the beginning of December each year, the mayor provides instructions to, uh, to agencies in building uh, their budgets. And the big thing that, that you know, people look at firstly is are, are reductions gonna be needed and if so, how big are they? Um, and so the answer this year is, of course, that reductions will be needed and they are bigger than in past years. And um, so this year, um, the mayor has directed agencies to propose cuts equal to 10% of their discretionary general fund uh, revenue. So for, and this number is an HSA-wide number, so it spans across DAS and benefits and family services and HSA administration. Um, but our target this year is six and a half million dollars, and the mayor has also directed that we propose a 5% contingency reduction, so the 6% um, they are confident they will need the contingency reduction they may very well need. Uh, so that's obviously another three and a quarter uh, million dollars. So altogether, um, they are looking to us for a, uh, a proposal for $10 million of discretionary general fund savings. That's big. Um, and that will, uh, you know, create a deficit. And, and so hence my remark before about labor costs, you know, if they go up, that number will go up as well. Um, the other thing to know is that there are some pressures beyond simply meeting the target. So um, as you know, DAS is a big provider of nutrition services. Um, there is within HSA administration a program um, that provides non-age uh, and disability related uh, food services. Um, and then there's a small program within DBFS that provides food services. 
Um, there's also some food services at the Department of Public Health, and there are little bits in here, here and there in other places. So the actual revenue forecast, which is based on funding for uh, food services that are to the general community goes down by $10 million in the second year of the biennium. And so the mayor's office has asked a number of agencies to work on a number of um, analyses and efforts to uh, bridge over programs that are in multiple agencies to bring down costs. And so this is one of them. So HSA is taking the lead on this particular one, food programming. And so, you know, we are working in a world where um, we're going to try very hard to bring down food costs, food-related costs or food and nutrition costs by $10 million. So that's another pressure that's out there. Um, Okay. Maybe we go forward, yeah. And then the last thing I'd like to just mention in terms of pressures, while I'm, while I'm piling it on, um, <laughs> is, um, is the state budget. And as I'm sure you've all read, the Legislative Analyst Office came out with its forecast um, a little while ago and estimated a $68 billion statewide budget deficit. So we're getting close to 11. So the mayor, the uh, governor has probably dropped his budget at this point, uh, or he's probably in the middle of his press conference on it now. Um, but, um, but the governor will propose his budget today. And, um, you know, and we're not anticipating that we'll be bailed out of this situation by the state budget because the state has a very large deficit problem of its own to deal with. Uh, in, you know, in past budgets, uh, when deficits have been big, although not necessarily this big, um, there have been meaningful cuts to human services programs. We don't know if that's going to happen this time, and um, the budget staff and I and many others will, will be spending a lot of time with the uh, governor's proposed budget starting this afternoon. But we're not anticipating that there will be um, anything in there that will solve the local problem for us. Okay. So that, that's kind of my, I guess it's a little bit of a bleak introduction on where we are. Um, we'll, you know, we will be working on, on building a budget that meets the reduction targets. Um, and of course, we will, as always, be trying to do it in a way that, uh, that preserves as much programming as possible, that uh, preserves jobs, that preserves the CBO sector. Um, but you know, as the numbers get bigger, that gets to be more and more of a challenge. So we will be back to you on that. I'm going to turn this over to Kelly Dearman, who will talk about the specifics of DAS programming at this point, and then we can both answer questions. Thank you so much, Dan. So, um, in light of all of that, I thought I would, you know, the need is still there. The um, and the need continues to grow, as you can see from, can you put those slides up, please? Thank you, sorry. Um, so um, 
the DOS caseloads, you will see uh, where we are in this in this slide. And I will just say that every year those numbers go up in terms of um, every area that we are working in, the need continues to, to rise. So, um, and I think it's important to look at this slide so as we're trying to balance what we are gonna do with this budget and where cuts have to be made, we have to be very much aware that um, there is a growing need for our services. Okay, next slide. So in terms of what we're looking at, most of this is um, in the memo that was provided to you. Um, I'll just highlight a couple things. In IHSS, um, it's good. We, are, we have a contract in place with the um, independent providers and SEIU Local 2015, which takes us through um, uh, fiscal year 26-27, so that's good. And also, um, happy to report that their wages grow to 25.50 over the next four years, and we are hoping that that will lead to an increased number of IPs who will sign up because we continue to have a caregiver shortage. In the public conservator, uh, we already have talked a little bit about SB 43, which expands the definition of grave disability. So um, we are anticipating that it's gonna increase the number of referrals that we get. So um, we might need some more resources to be able to handle this. We're working with the mayor's office. It is a mayoral priority. So, um, so we're doing everything we can, but we likely will need more staff to do this. Um, next slide, please. Uh, in the Office of uh, Community Partnerships, as outlined in the in the memo, we're still doing. We are we have res resumed a lot of in-person community service programs. A lot of them are still doing some form of hybrid. It's a work in progress as we as everyone tries to get it right. What what best serves the needs of the community. Um, We'll continue with our initiatives focused on disability and LGBTQ plus communities and in the disability community in particular, I will highlight once again the Disability Community Center. We took out one of the C's. It used to be the Disability Community Cultural Center. It's now just the Disability Community Center because we didn't want to be confused with the DCCC. Um, so uh, hybrid, hybrid programming is set to start in July. Um, In-person programming won't be for another year. And um, we are working with Haven of Hope and their contract is being finalized, so that's exciting. And uh, we are working with, or Curry Senior Center is doing the LGBTQ telehealth um, program and they've been onboarding therapists and consumers to the program so we are really happy to see that um, and then I did want to mention in the benefits and resource uh, hub uh, for the we have a veterans transportation center transportation program that we did use um, during APEC so that is still um, going on and service credit purchases for veterans who are service employees is that um, uh, they can now purchase military service credit 
as a public service in addition to being able to purchase military service credit under the um, city charter. So that's more benefits for our veterans, which we, which we um, appreciate. Uh, next slide. And that's, so, so that's pretty much what we're doing, and I'm happy to answer yeah. questions. And so the next slide is is just the schedule. Um, as I mentioned before, we will be back to you on February 7th, um, and then uh, we will be preparing the the technical budget. Um, this is this is done by our budget director, Celia Pedrosa. Genevieve Herrera, Alex Gleason in this group, and they have a bunch of coworkers who also work on the DBFS and the HSA side of things. Um, that's, there's a lot of detail in that. And so between the 7th of February and the comparable date for the Human Services Commission and February 21st, they will be pulling together the budget and um, having a technically complete budget as well. Um, so, are there questions for Director Dearman or me or our teams? Questions? Good morning. Um, I guess the, the the biggest thing that jumped at me when when you know when you uh, when you look at this uh, uh, projections is that you know we, we're looking at approximately seven hundred ninety-nine million dollars worth of uh, deficit. In, in the next two years, and then the, our lack of a better term, response to that is that we're going to try to save approximately 14 million from the budget. Uh, you know, you, if we have a unlimited amount of uh, budget, mm -hmm. we can give an unlimited amount of you know to, to service an unlimited amount of need. However, I realize you know that the needs is going to continue to increase. The services that we provide, it's got to be proportionate to what the budget is going to be, you know, it's going to allow. So, you know, I mean, are there any plans to really balance that to, to the point where you know it, it is balanced? Well, that that'll be the budget-making process. Obvi obviously, um, you know, there are right. There are two pieces. We're we've been talking about deficits. There are two pieces to the equation. Revenues minus expenses either result in surpluses or deficits. So we're going to try and get that um, that number to be not a surplus and not a deficit, to be zero. Um, there may be revenues that are possible here. As I as I said, we we will be looking very closely at the governor's budget. Um, you know. Because I haven't seen it yet, I can be hopeful that there may be a few extra revenue dollars there. Um, as I said, with the $68 billion budget, I'm not sanguine that there are going to be. Um, but certainly, that, that's a piece of it. And then the other thing we can do is we can um, either reduce costs by um, cutting program positions or CBO contracts, or we can right-size contracts, if we're, for example, have a contract for a million dollars, but it's only billed out 880,000, you know, we, instead of saying, well, how do we get you up to a million dollars of service, we can say, why don't you keep providing $880,000 of service and 
will take back that $120,000. So, so staff are looking up for opportunities to do that in, in the scheme of things. Those are easier cuts and cuts that don't stop the actual provision of service that's happening now. Um, but we're gonna be looking for all of the ways we can get to those targets uh, that minimize the impact on clients. That's what we're doing. But uh, in reality, majority of these uh, organizations are coming back to us for a 10% increase. Um, yeah, and, and we have built increases into the budget. This is a difference this year, be between this year and, and um, past years. We, um, the board passed a budget ordinance this year that gets us to build inflation in from the beginning. So we are already assuming that that inflation will be there. Now, we may have to buy less service in some areas, but we want to be able to uh, pay the CBOs who are delivering service what the costs that they're actually facing for the services we're um, contracting with them to deliver. And, and that's, you know, that's been a, a discussion of many years in San Francisco. Um, you know, in the past, we've always said, okay, well, is there going to be a cost of doing business increase or not? It's, it's waited till relatively late in the process. So, so we've changed that around and that, that changes the dynamic a little bit. But I, but I think, I think the board's ordinance is, is a good step forward in acknowledging that what, whatever services we buy, we should pay the cost of providing those services. So. Thank you. Um, well, well, thank you. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for the data. You know, I mean, as a uh, recovering consultant, I love data, so pie charts and things. Um, uh, some of the numbers were pretty alarming. You know, when you, especially the long-term projection mm -hmm. uh, of deficit, is is pretty alarming. Um, but part of my question is is kind of a follow-up to what you asked, and I'm wondering, because I'm looking at the caseloads, and Director Durman, you said these are going up, um, you know, year over year, they just keep going up the caseload. But I'm wondering if you know how much of the increase has been related to the pandemic, um, and uh, if you're able to forecast how the reduction in, you know, COVID and, and respiratory diseases might reduce some of the demand for services uh, so that you can make up a little bit of that gap uh, going forward. Do you want to take that one? So I don't know that we, um, I, I think we are still in the process of trying to figure out how much of that is COVID or how much is, uh, as people continue to recover. So I don't believe we have the answer to that yet, but I think we allow for that when we're trying to build the budget. Yeah. I, I, would say, I would say in the area of IHSS, which is the biggest part of our budget, there are two things worth noting. The first is that caseloads have been growing for many years. Um, the pandemic was, was a, a special time. We did some special things, first of all, and secondly, we had great difficulty getting providers during the pandemic. Um, but from a financial point of view, 
the the way we pay for IHSS services for the most part is through this mechanism that I described, the IHSS MOE. And that is not dependent on the number of people receiving services in San Francisco. So the weird as that seems. The IHSS MOE grows by 4% a year if we make no changes in the program. There could be caseload growth. There could be 8% caseload growth. But that base amount of the IHSS MOE would still grow by 4% a year. That's established in state law. Um, and then the other way the IHSS MOE grows is uh, when we change wages or benefits. So. Uh, Director Dearman mentioned that we have a contract that's a multi-year contract and that it ultimately gets to $25.50 an hour. Those increases are already factored into this projection. Um, and there's really, under this contract, there's no meaningful way we could reduce those costs. So they're just part of the landscape we're dealing with here. Well, just on that point, I see that you know, salary and wages is, is only 10% of the total uh, expense, which to me doesn't seem very high uh, for, for what you're doing. So that wouldn't be where I would look myself. I think, you know, we want to increase staff salaries for the, what the work is that they're doing. I, I think it's um, uh, important to, you know, keep them uh, as whole as possible. Um, so uh, I'm just hoping there's some places, because obviously demand is increasing. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing to suggest that it's not going to increase. So it's, you know, do more with less. Um, even though the other thing I noted is that the 60% um, of the funding for um, the department is from federal and state sources. Uh, and yet, if only 40% is from local funding, you're still subjected to the same you know, budget decrease as every other department. Um, so I thought that seemed a little, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I should say a word about that. So mm. I, I, I did mention that the 10% is applied to discretionary general funds. Um, Celia and her team work with the mayor's budget office to um, kind of recalibrate which of our general funds are actually discretionary. But for example, the, the IHSS MOE dollars are not discretionary, are they? Right. So so those are locked in and and we don't apply the ten percent to that set of costs. It's really it's really things that we can um, make changes in. So the, uh, another big item in DOS that's not discretionary is the dignity fund. Right. That that the amounts in that are established in law um, the city, I mean, the, the growth is dependent on the deficit projections, but, but the amount in the base of the dignity fund is, is not discretionary. So that 10% would not be applied to that either. So there are, there are lots of chunks of money in our program that are, that are general funds, but they're not, or they're local funds, but they're not discretionary. Okay. Thank you for that. Clarification. You, you still have your work cut out for you, it oh, yeah. seems to me. So, but thank you. Um, a couple questions. One, um, it's a it's a big question. It's like, at, in this in the second presentation that we'll get in the final that we're going to vote on next month, will, will we start to see where those suggested cuts 
and the discretionary funds are being made? Yes. Okay, because that, that wasn't in here. And then the second question is about the Benefits and Resource Hub. We've all been so interested in the getting uh, online uh, resources in a much more effective way. And um, does, does that is that changing at all um, with these increased, um, I can see, requirements for the benefits and, and resource hubs? So sort of a specific. So we continue to work on the online resource directory so that that can be available, but it doesn't change what happens in the office at the hub. We continue to have, um, you know, a lot of calls, people coming in, and we have to do language capacity, and so that is going to continue whether or not we have an online resource directory. Right, and then what the, the, the improvements in all of that, improvements in technology and people being able to access information. Yeah, so. That is still um, that is still ongoing. Hold on a second. Um, Fanny's not here. I don't know if Mike or Cindy want to add to that. Want to speak to that? Let's see how they both ran. So the question is, in terms of the resource hub, trying to make the technological improvements and other improvements to increase access, is that still going to move forward? Yeah, so, excuse me, Cindy Kaufman, Deputy Director, Community Services, and yes, so the online resource hub, the online resource directory itself is, it will be an aid to the hub, but it is really more community focused so that people have that accessibility. The hub absolutely will be able to use it, but the idea is it is more encompassing and it, it will be another tool in the, in the toolbox for the hub, but it is not the only one. They have a variety of resources because they do intake for most of our direct service programs along with several of, of our community services. So we are always looking at ways of improving it does that answer the question? Mm, I, I, and you know what? I, I just didn't mean to overcomplicate it. I'm saying we, we all have been interested in those that project. And now I can see we have additional requirements that are listed here because of the new legislative, different legislative uh, requirements. And will that in any way, um, you know, stop that program? So I, I guess pretty simple question. I didn't mean to overcomplicate it. Okay. In here, yeah, we're good. That's a good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Any other questions? Oh, I, over, uh, one minor question and more of a comment. Um, my question is to Deputy Director Kaplan. In terms of um, your slide on the mayor's budget drivers, this um, mention of assuming full funding, ten-year capital plan. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is that? Um, I mean, I can tell you what that is. The, okay. um, the city uh, goes through a 10-year capital planning process. The city obviously owns a lot of real estate and has to maintain the real estate. And, um, and so it plans to make expenses. And there are, I think, 
I mean, I, I, this is more their, the capital budgeters area than mine, but I would say that they, you know, they think about repair and maintenance of major systems within buildings that um, the city is going to keep. City, city Hall needs regular work done on it. Every other building needs regular work done on it. And then there are sometimes special needs or special situations to deal with. One of the ones we're dealing with in HSA at the moment has to do with our building at 170 Otis. DAS is at 1650 for the most part and, and Tugoff. And then on the third corner, right in that neighborhood, is 170 Otis. 170 Otis is a seismic hazard four rated building, which means it's a building that needs major overhaul for earthquake safety. Um, we've made a judgment that it makes sense for us to get out of that building rather than doing that major retrofitting project. So there is money in the capital budget to help us purchase um, some new uh, building space that, that some of the staff within uh, 170 could go to. So that, that remains in place. That kind of thing remains in place. Thank you. As a retiree city employee, I just want to let you know I was part of that staff that actually moved into 170 years uh -huh. and years ago, <laughs> and now to hear about the status of well, the building. Well, you know, <laughs> what, what we say is that the, the standards have gotten better over yes. the years. The building is not not really different, but the standards have gotten more stringent, and uh, and we've been obviously much more sensitive to earthquake danger. So that's what's behind it. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the explanation. My comment more has to do with, I just wanna just uh, thank both you and Executive Director Dearman for basically uh, providing a, a, a excellent framework as to what we're looking for towards in terms of program planning, the high increased demands, increased caseloads, and the shrinking uh, revenue. Um, that's really helpful, so I do look forward to seeing the creative scrambling that you and your staff will be doing, uh, which I've seen in the past, and I'm sure uh, there would be good s solutions to what we are facing. I'm pleased to see that we continue to maintain the principles of uh, maintaining client services, um, that we continue to maximize revenue opportunities, and that we'll be repurposing uh, existing vacancies. I mean, I think those are really good principles for us to continue to work with. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Well, we will be back in a month. Um, I am uh, saving my question for last. Ah. Um, thank you so much for uh, this presentation and the, and the representation of the information. Um, my question has to do with uh, the state budget shortfall that we are expecting, and I know that you all are looking forward to rushing back and figuring what the governor said, but I want to make sure that I'm following the bouncing ball of what the impact may be for us. So if I go to our sources tab, and this is looking at this year's budget, and we say that there is a potential shortfall that we'll know more about and we'll hear in February. So one, I want to clarify that that's when we'll really know what the impact will be here. Yeah. The categories that will that potentially will be impacted 
are those the categories that you recognize as state funding dollars or would it only be those that are coming from the Department of Disability, Department of Aging Services from the state or is it all of the above state funding on the sources? Yeah, I mean the, what, what's in the, um, that I mentioned was coming for, through the CDA is largely federal money. Um, the, the state buckets of money are what we've labeled as state and, so the two and the two realignments. So the realignment money, what will be in that um, bucket is really an artifact of what comes in through the sales tax and the vehicle licensing fee. Um, okay. You know, over time, those certainly grow. I mean, on average, they grow. There have been years where they've gone down. So at the time of the Great Recession, the 2011 realignment didn't exist, but 1991 did exist, and it was an important funding source for human services agencies, and it went down a lot um, because people started spending on things that, stopped spending on things that generated the money, cars and other things that generate um, sales tax. And so there were several years there where that that uh, revenue source really declined and human services agencies or municipalities had to balance around that reduction. Um, we don't know that that's gonna be the situation in the upcoming year. There has been growth uh, recently, so we, we will just have to see. One of the things that happens in the governor's budget is they do an updated forecast on those revenue sources. And those would be tied to people coming and leaving the state, sales tax, basically how many people are in the state and what's happening with buying things and buying cars. Right. That, those, right. those are the two real. And it's also, it's statewide. It's not, yes, so, statewide. There, so, so, there is, so there is a local sales tax, but, but really uh, the, the, yeah, the, okay. the expenditures that fund the local government fund, which fund realignment are on a statewide basis. <laughs> and then, so the other one that is potentially a source that we would be concerned about is the one that just says state, and that's the one that we're waiting to hear. Right, and that would, I mean, revenues would go down only if there were explicit cuts. Right, right. okay, just wanted to make sure. Which has happened in the yeah. past, but, it, but, it, but that, that's what, it would require the governor to propose a reduction. It's a big shortfall at the state level, right. so I'm just wanting to understand how it may flow down for us, to right. us, so thank you. Okay. And Thank looking you. forward to February. Okay. Looking forward. Looking forward. <laughs> yes, looking forward to February. Any other uh, comments from the commission? Okay. Ooh. Okay. I'm glad we got the good news first. <laughs> and, uh, that was informational. Um, am I on 13B now? We are. Um, we'll close. Okay, so I'm on agenda item 13B, and we're requesting authorization to enter into a new grant agreement with elder givers doing business as arts with elders for the provision of creative arts for older adults and adults with disabilities during the period of January 1st, 2024 through June 30th, 2026, and the amount of $250,000 plus a 10% contingency for a total amount not to exceed $275,000. And Michael Zog will present this item. Uh, good morning, Commissioners, Executive Director Dearman. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, I had an excellent presentation ready to go on this, and then 
Sitting through Dan's presentation, I thought, oh boy, I'm about to come up and ask you to allocate more funding out the door. So let's try to navigate that right now before we get into, into the details. So um, the item here before you is a pilot um, program, a creative arts program. You know, the department had committed this funding to this project in November of 2022 um, with a goal of a project kickoff um, in July of 2023, so six months ago. Um, we had a protracted procurement process due to a variety of reasons, um, including low staffing and things. So this is why this is just getting to you now um, and kind of under the wire as, as our budget issues loom. Um, the nature of the funding of this program, because this carries that pilot programming um, sort of tag, um, the nature of this is, this the funding for this program is one time in nature. And what I mean is that with this grant approved, all of the funding for the full term is ready and there in the budget. And it, it ends when the grant ends. We do not have ongoing funding um, for the program. So why that's important from a budget perspective is that when, when we look at um, reducing a budget, we are really more focused on ongo reducing ongoing costs um, and sort of cutting these short-term, smaller things um, are not really a sustainable solution towards resolving budgetary issues. Um, it does then ask the question of why, what about Art with Elders and what about these art students? What are they gonna do in, January, in June 30th of 2026 when this funding runs out? I would say that I would contend today that the services that we will provide between now and then or that Art with Elders will provide between now and then are going to be beneficial for people in the near term experiences for them to, to enjoy. Um, we can look at um, how things are going and we can weigh that uh, when we make budgeting decisions uh, down the road. It will of course be a, in all likelihood a tougher decision um, two years from now than it is, than it is today. Um, I would also say that because of, again, the nature of these funds, the pilot programming, I would not be here at the moment. I, they, I, they would not let me up to this podium to uh, try to get your approval on this if this was um, truly going to be something that um, was critical to our budget balancing. Um, I think maybe another way to look at this is that um, we have just a hand, you know, when we think about how serious the department is about meeting these targets um, and looking at budget, um, maybe step back from the trees of these items today to the forest of, we haven't had a commission meeting in a couple of months. We, you know, we used to be bringing you guys, uh, you know, epics to read every month of all the things that were going on. We have really moved into a, into a mode where there is not a lot of new activity happening. We are not launching a lot of new things, um, certainly not a lot of ongoing um, new things. So that is really um, to help contextualize what we're, what we're up to. I'll answer questions on that in a second, but now I'm gonna to try to get you on the upswing here with, with uh, creative arts programming. This is a 2.5, two and a half year um, uh, 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 pilot program that's gonna have fine arts classes at four uh, locations in the city, as well as one online option. Um, I think what's pretty exciting about this is that Art with Elders um, 
is kind of leading a pretty cool collaboration of different DOS sites located in the community. So they're bringing in their expertise and their programming um, and hosting it out at um, DOS sites located throughout the city, pretty strategically located, um, which is really exciting about kind of getting out there and reaching our DOS network of services, but also getting out there into the neighborhoods and communities here in the city. Um, pretty straightforward. Um, these are fine arts classes. Participants are provided with materials at the start of the course and resupplied as needed. Um, classes are led by experienced artists who have um, extensive teaching, educational, and professional experience. Um, there's themes throughout these classes. Um, uh, teachers will often lead discussions and themes through the art. Um, examples might be the LGBTQ experience or living with the disabilities. Um, and then, you know, there's more here than, than just the art and, and, the, and the products that are being created. Um, I think Art With Elders knows and, and DOS is recognizing more and more that creative arts programmings like this are creating really um, opportunities for social connection, um, really important, meaningful experiences um, and activities and ways of expressing oneself. Um, we see that by the passion um, and, and, and enjoyment of program participants. We see it in the surveys that we get back with very high marks uh, for them. We're also kind of sneaking in. We know from our um, uh, various needs assessment processes that we all, always hear back that people don't really know about what services are out there or how to access those services. We kind of are gonna meld into this a little bit. We have some modest goals around trying to use these classes as an opportunity to do some sort of resource sharing around, hey, here's, you know, here's you know, services that are also co-located at this site, or maybe some general idea around um, the network of aging services and how one might go about, go about accessing them. So it's kind of a little thing we're sneaking in there. Um, with that said, I'm happy to answer any questions that the commission might have. Commissioners, do you have any questions? Yeah, quick comment. Just thank. I really appreciated uh, the distribution of the services. That the locations that you chose uh, were very thoughtful and exciting. <laughs> so I was very excited to see where you were going to do those programs. And I think it's going to be a, a really well placed. Cool. So and especially with an, one that's online, I just like the whole. Uh, all the, every bit of it, you know, you had a, a good distribution across the city and one online was just a great, great way of doing it. And so. we do have built in, they're going to do some exhibitions along the way. So we'll try to keep you guys linked in or on that. I, I just have a, a, a one quick, well, a couple of quick comments. First comment, I really like your energy. I just oh, say. Okay, all right. You're very welcome. <laughs> And, um, and so I came here from the Arts Commission, so, you know, when I saw what this was about and looked through everything, it was like, well, you had me on hello, you know, so okay, you, you didn't have to say much more. Um, and I see, I like the range of locations and things, and I think the benefits speak for themselves of art, you know, for the elders. Um, so you brought up funding beyond the pilot, since it is a pilot, and I was going to suggest go to the Arts Commission. Okay. Because they have, they have money for this, so... Uh, that way, you know, you, you want to have multiple funding sources so you can uh, expand the, the program, which I'm sure will be successful. So thank you for giving us an opportunity to look at it. Any other comments? Commissioner Lum. Uh, yes. Um, 
Since this is a uh, pilot program, has any thought been given or any effort made to, uh, uh, to work in conjunction with the uh, Academy of Arts, which has, you know, campuses all over the city, and, you know, rather than reinventing the wheel, I mean, they have everything set up. <laughs> yeah. I, the short answer is, in the immediate, no. We have not reached out to try to do those things. We know that there are certainly art classes um, at City College, which are, which are free. Um, we know that there are private art classes that one could go and sign up and, and take tomorrow, potentially. Um, I think um, what we, I think what we're getting here that's different from that is an expertise um, in the organization we're working with and that they are really, they are focused on the DOS populations, adults with disabilities um, and older adults. And we're also going to be hosting these, these in um, places that are spaces dedicated to that, that population. Um, and you're, we don't get those in, in, in college environments and things like that. And, and, and with all due respect to City College, which is, which is great, but um, I think we fundamentally believe that spaces and services dedicated to older adults and adults with disabilities are gonna be the ones that are gonna be the most enjoyable, the most beneficial, and are gonna actually bring people in. So I think that's why we went, we're going this route. Thank you. Thanks, commissioners. Secretary, you're up. Are there any members of the public that would like to address this item? Moderator, please open the phone lines to for public comment on agenda item 13B. And we'll give them one moment. Moderator, any phone any callers in the queue? I do not see any callers. Okay, that concludes public comment. My, I know I'm on your lines, but that's okay. Hearing no further requests to speak on the item, we will close public comment. Is there a motion from the commission? So moved. So, and there's a motion and a second. Mr. Secretary, please take the roll call vote to approve item 13B. President Janet Weiss Spears, how do you vote? Yes. Vice President Nelson Lum, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Martha Knutson, how do you vote? Commissioner Wanda Jung, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Sasha Bittner, how do you vote? Yes. And Commissioner Linda Parker Pennington, how do you vote? Yes. Thanks, we have a unanimous vote. Thank you, and thank you, Michael. Our next item is item 13C, requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with Stepping Stone for the provision of LGBTQ plus community services pi program pilot during the period of January 1st, 2024 through January 30th, 2027 in the additional amount of $185,962 plus a 10% contingency for a total amount not to exceed $1,326,797. Sarah Chan will present this item. Good morning, Commissioner, Executive Director Dearman. My name is Sarah Chan, the Program Analyst from Office of Community Partnership. And in front of you today is the Stepping Stones LGBTQ Plus Community Service Program Pilot uh, that we are planning to provide additional funding to support 
support their ongoing higher learning classes for the period of January uh, 1st, 2024, and, and until the end of their grant term. And uh, annual higher learning budget in this grant is about 45K per year. And uh, the total funding we are adding to this grant is a little bit over 180,000, and which covers half year of current fiscal year and three years for the remaining term. And in addition, we're also uh, adding um, the, including the cost of doing business adjustment of 3.75%. And since 2017, Stepping Stone has been receiving DAS funding through a pilot program to provide community services programming that's specifically designed to support and outreach to LGBTQ plus participants and their caregivers, especially uh, if they need adult day health care services. And their staff are specially trained for LGBTQ plus history, cultural, and uh, specifically the needs and topic uh, in the LGBTQ plus population. And their program design also ensure the physical space of the community service site is safe and welcoming to the LGBTQ plus participants. And in addition to the community services programming, Stepping Stone offers higher learning classes at Stepping Stone's four adult day health centers. This includes two centers at the north side of, of Market Street, which is Golden Gate Adult Day Health Center and Presentation Adult Day Health Center, and two centers at the south side of Market Street, Mabini Adult Day Health Center and Mission Creek Adult Day Health Center. Higher learning classes are college level classes, which has been offered in collaboration with uh, City College over at least two decades and uh, with a well established partnership with the community. And um, this is through the City College's um, older adult programs. And these classes are taught by City College of San Francisco instructors with an advanced degree and experience in the field of the study. Classes offered at these centers are body, dynamic, and aging process. Participants learn strategies for safely implementing an activity program, and uh, they learn the technique how to manage their stress and um, understand the key healthy aging concepts to maintain and improve overall health and well-being. And in our last fiscal year, 22-23 program review with the Stepping Stones LGBTQ plus community service program pilot, and the program is in compliance with all programmatic standards. Um, I'm here to happy to answer any questions you may have. Commissioners, do you have any questions? Ms. Chen, I just have a minor question. I have no question regarding um, the cost of living adjustment, the modification to cover that. I just wasn't clear in terms of the higher learning classes. I noticed in the original contract, it already lists a number of classes. So are the classes more expensive and so therefore they need additional funding or they're adding more classes or uh, what's the status of the classes? Thank you for the questions. So at the beginning when the contract first implement, we were able to only implement a six months class. So the original budget only has six months. And over the past year and a half, when we enter into the grant with this 
contract, we're able to use the contingency to cover their annual uh, higher learning budget of 45K. Okay, thank you. Commissioners, any other questions? I'm sorry, I do so is this a new class? No, it is, it is it, ongoing it's, classes. It's ongoing. Okay, just to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, Mr. Secretary, do we have anyone from the public who wishes to comment on item 13C? Are there any members of the public that would like to comment on agenda item 13C? Moderator, please open the phone line for public comment on agenda item 13C. We'll allow some time for callers to submit their request. Moderator, do we have any callers in the queue? There are no callers. Thank you. Hearing no further requests to speak on the item, we will close public comment. Is there a motion? So it's been moved. Second. And second. Um, Mr. Secretary, please take a roll call vote. Uh, for item 13C. President Janet Y. Spears, how do you vote? Yes. Vice President Nelson Lum, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Martha Knudsen, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Sasha Bittner, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Wanda Jung, how do you vote? Yes. And Commissioner Linda Parker Pennington, how do you vote? Yes. Thanks. We have a unanimous vote. Thank you. Thank you very much. Commissioners, our next item is item 13D requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with multiple providers to apply the cost of doing business increase during the period of January 1st, 2024 through June 30th, 2025 in the additional amount of $191,963 plus a 10% contingency for the total amount not to exceed 13789 $798,585. Rico Duenas? Rocio Duenas. Rocio Duenas? Yeah. We'll present this item. Sorry about that. It's okay. Good morning, Commissioners, Executive Director Dearman. My name is Rocio Duenas. I'm a Principal Contract Manager with the Human Services Agency. I'm here today to request your approval of the fiscal year 23-24 annual cost of doing business adjustment for nonprofit service providers. At the end of 2023, the Mayor's Budget Office and the Board of Supervisors approved a 3.75% CODB for ongoing grants with nonprofit organizations. CODB amounts for each organization are calculated from the following costs contained in each grant agreement, salaries and associated benefits, operational costs, and indirect costs. The CODB is not applied to any client pass-through funds, new programs, or addbacks that started in this fiscal year. In the past couple of months, the department has been working with nonprofit service providers to add the 23-24 CODB to their grant agreements. Most grant agreements contained enough contingency in the existing not to exceed amounts to cover the CODB increase, and therefore they did not require formal commission approval. For those grants, the contracts unit will work with grantees to process informal budget revisions to add the CODB funds. The grant agreements that did not contain enough contingency in the existing agreements are included in Table 1 of the memorandum. For these grants, for these grant agreements, upon commission approval, the contracts unit will process formal grant modifications to add the CODB funds to the grant agreements. I, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Commissioners, do you have any questions regarding the um, add back? Oh, sorry, the CODB. Didn't want to get that wrong. 
I know. Whew. Are there any questions from the commission? Okay. Hearing no questions from the commissioners, Mr. Secretary, do we have anyone from the public who wishes to comment on item 13D? Are there any members of the public that would like to comment on item 13D? Uh, moderator, please open the phone line for public comment on item 13D. We'll give the moderator one minute. And moderator, do we have any callers in the queue? There are no callers. Thank you. That concludes public comment. Thank you. Uh, okay, I'm having a moment. Um, hearing no further requests to speak on the item, we will close public comment. Is there a motion um, from the commissioners? So moved. I'll move. <laughs> so we got three moves and a, and a second, whichever one you'd like, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Secretary, will you please take the roll call vote to approve item 13D? President Janet Spears, how do you vote? Yes. Vice President Nelson Lum, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Martha Knudsen, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Sasha Bittner, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Wanda Zhang, how do you vote? Yes. And Commissioner Linda Parker Pennington, how do you vote? Yes. Thanks. We have a unanimous vote. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, commissioners, um, our next item is item 14. Any announcements um, for the, the minutes? Okay, so I, Oh, I, I do have yes. one. Uh, I did send this out by email. Uh, there was a um, uh, sftv.gov program that was um, recorded in um, August, I think, and it was finally released, and apparently SFTV, SFGov TV, um, not only broadcast, take, they care, they're broadcasting this commission meeting, the Board of Supervisors, and all of the public, meetings, but they have a series of programs that they have packaged together. So they did one on uh, aging and what it's like, what the quality of life is as you, as one get, gets older or retires. And so there were four of us in a panel discussion. So they packaged that in a one hour program and they ju just launched a couple of weeks ago. So I sent it out to you. It's a YouTube channel under SFTV.gov. So if you get a chance, you have an hour despair to look at it you know it's I, I, it was fun doing and it turns out that um president spears was you know one of those people was on her board of directors and uh, we didn't know each other before then but it was a lot of fun doing it and just kind of demystifying being an og you know kind of <laughs> you know what is it like really and and you know how do we live our lives and some of the challenges of that so it was fun to get the opportunity to do that thank you Yes, and I know my uh, board member Jimmy Lois had a, a he had a wonderful time um, doing that um, uh, interview uh, process. So, um, thank you. Um, any other announcements from the commission? Okay, hearing no other announcements, item fifteen is to adjourn. So I adjourn the meeting. <laughs>